Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Okay. There you go. Let's get right into it. So we're covering quite a bit today. We're looking to the living, breathing, uh, essential parts of spiritual philosophy. And that is how to put them into practice. You know, how can we turn these concepts into lived realities? So we picked up this discussion about two weeks ago, and then we paused it for Buddha Purnima. And now we're going to try to integrate or at least weave together or at least entrain um, along with us all of the ideas that we've been building together over the past couple of weeks. So there'll be a bit of a recap. And then most importantly, we'll spend the majority of the time asking the question, how do we go from a conceptual uh, mind understanding of these ideas uh, into a more lived, experiential heart understanding of these ideas? So we started last week by describing the predicament a lot of spiritual practitioners find themselves in. You know, eventually, everybody finds their way into spiritual practice. You know, coming in through one door or another, sooner or later, you're going to become interested in the question, what is there to life uh, beyond what I have experienced? You know, what, what is death? What does it mean to be human? Who am I? And what am I to do here? So in some sense, everyone will be drawn into spiritual practice in one form or the other. And there are a few ways that this might happen. For some people, the uh, house burns down. And they lose a loved one. They uh, lose all their money because IRS backup withholdings. You know, and that grief, that poignancy of life that everyone is bound to experience at some point or another, that is the catalyst. And it's in that moment when people are confronted with the reality of death, not just as an abstract notion of something that happens to other people, not just as this thing that is confined to old folks' homes and faraway historical wars, but is a thing that happens to everybody, not just to me, but to my loved ones. Welcome, Bia. Happy you could be here. So eventually, we have to confront death, and uh, that usually draws us into spiritual practice. If not death, then grief. You know, there's some level of the tragedy of life, if you will, starting the process of philosophy, asking why me, why God, Job is screaming at the heavens, trying to figure out why suffering. And most importantly, why does it keep happening? You know, and in the beginning, it's always someone else's fault. It's the government, you know, it's the astrological transits. There's always someone else to blame for suffering, but sooner or later, everyone begins to take responsibility um, for their suffering. Because they realize appealing to the government or appealing to the stars in the sky or appealing to some deity doesn't really do it. Um, and the suffering keeps occurring. So when there's death, when there is grief, when there is loss, these are powerful catalysts for spiritual practice. And so people find themselves at the Hare Krishna temple. They eat, pray, love it, so to speak. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that dramatic. There are some people who having not lost anybody, having not experienced grief, you know, are still becoming curious about the spiritual quest. They're still starting to find meaning in asking the question, um, who am I? What am I here for? And they have the motivation to pursue the answers uh, quite doggedly, you know. 
But sooner or later, as Christopher Wallace says nicely, there's only one game in town after all. So whether you're a Wall Street uh, billionaire trying to build your wealth into unimaginable portions, whether you're a Kardashian trying to uh, create an empire of fame, um, or whether you're just a common cobbler, uh, eventually we will all find each other in the same room in one way or another. Now, when we arrive in the spiritual practice uh, arena. You know, when we arrive at spiritual practice, we first encounter concepts, very exciting concepts, concepts that have the promise to once and for all extricate us from our suffering. They're the answers we've so desperately looked for. Finally, we encounter a tradition and some of these traditions, 9,000 years old, um, and these answers are forthcoming. You know, we might have been frustrated because the rabbi or the priest or the uh, 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 what have you, religious authority in our childhood wasn't able to supply us with these questions. But we find that, the, sorry, the answers, but we find that the answers are there. We get very excited about our Alan Watts and our Ram Das, and we're reading and reading and we're watching all the uh, lectures that are available for watching and we become inundated with concepts. And in the beginning, there's a honeymoon period. You know, there's this uh, very delightful, oh my God. <laughs> um all the TikTok people have just fallen into the void. No. So in the beginning, there's this honeymoon period in which we get um, satisfied, at least for a time, with the ideas. You know, we, we can sleep at night a little better knowing that we're not alone. At least there are other people who have really suffered in their life and, and, and misery loves company. We've all come together because our hearts have been broken. You know, so in the beginning, we find a group of people whose hearts have also been broken. And that's exciting because you realize, oh, it wasn't just me. You know, it wasn't like I'm Sisyphus and I was singled out by vengeful Greek deities and forced to push this rock up a hill. No, there are other Sisyphians out there and all of them feel like they're the only one who has ever suffered. They feel like they're the only one who has ever lost a loved one. Uh, and, and they feel very personal about their suffering. But it's nice to meet others and realize, no, 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 it's very universal. You're not that special, which is liberating. Uh, when it comes to suffering. So when we had our lecture about what is death, notice how real our room got, how everybody started sharing their stories of love and loss. Um, and and that's, that's exciting. In the beginning, we realize, okay, there's a community. We're not alone. Then we get ideas that, that at least promise a way out of suffering. And it's all very exciting. But in, in about three months, in about five months, in about a year, maybe 10, we start to realize that no matter how many lectures we go to, no matter, no matter how many books we read, no, man, no matter how many satsangs we spend six hours in, uh, we still wake up the next day finding ourselves to be the same person before the satsang as we were after. You know, For an hour in the cafe, the book has made an indelible impression. But when you're driving home from the cafe, you're still cussing at the people who cut you off in traffic. The same patterns are there. And for all the high-flown philosophy in the world, um, depression still finds its way to creep into your soul. Some emotion seems to surge up from nowhere. And before you know it, you're overwhelmed by it. You're overwhelmed by some sadness, by some anger. Uh, a parent or a guardian says something and it sets you off. And for a week, you're just, you know. Um, and even when you sit down for your Buddhist meditation, you're like. Um, and, and you wonder, yeah, this, this stuff is helping to some degree. You know, I've been doing my asana. 
I've been I've been coming to the mat every day and I feel stronger. My transverse ab- abdominis, you know, my deep muscles have definitely become stronger. I'm more sensitive to food and and to beauty. Yes, that's happened. The asana has strengthened you, has made you helpful. And to some degree, the meditation has given you periods of pleasure. You know, rapturous moments of sublime absorption in meditation. Um, And certainly reading the books, coming to the lectures, there's a certain kind of infectious spirituality, a kind of high that we all get secondhand from being together in communion. Wherever two or more are gathered, there I am also. You know, so we feel in this room, the living spirit. We read in a book, the living spirit, and we experience rapturous moments of contact intimately with that living spirit in meditation, in asana, in kirtan. Yet, this is the conundrum, it almost inevitably fades away. And the more we try to cling on to that spiritual bliss, the more it seems to elude us. And it reminds me of that line in Lord of the Rings where Vigo Mortensen waxes lyrical, long have you hunted me, long have I eluded you. Bliss is like that. It seems to slip through our fingers when we first catch a hold of it. It's like some of you are lucid dreamers. You know, the moment you get excited about your lucid dream, you're awake. You know, it's like that. So we're going to address that. And we've started to address it a couple of lectures ago. And we're going to continue the conversation. Why is it that when you feel a profound influx of divine energy, and you all know the feeling, why is it that there is a decay period? Why does that energy seem to leak? And why do we find ourselves waking up to the same patterns, the same problems, and the same egoic constructs uh, that we had before the kirtan, before the asana session? You know, what, what is with that? And what do we do about that? Okay, so to address this question, I want to share with you today uh, the three pillars of practice. And hopefully this can be a kind of spiritual troubleshooting. Uh, You can and will stabilize yourself in these states that for, for most of us now are only glimpses, you know. The promise of spirituality is not momentary experiences of bliss. Uh, you can get that with a, with a, at the bar with your bartender with some whiskey. You know, as Herman Hesse's Siddhartha points out, what I learned with the yogis of the forest, I could just have easily have learned uh, at the brothel over a bowl of rice wine. You know, if you're looking for escapism, uh, you can achieve that with much less work, uh, you know, with whiskey and with whatever, whatever other escapist uh, methods we have. And, you know, we live in a world in which there are numerous. So spirituality is not just about momentary feelings of It goes beyond that one Instagram post in which we feel radiant. It goes beyond the one retreat in which we made some good friends and, you know, had good memories. Uh, It's about permanently establishing yourself in an undisturbed, undifferentiated state of rapture. In, in, in which each moment becomes a profound expression of art, where meditation becomes your uh, uh, default state as opposed to a state you experience for a couple of seconds in an otherwise frustrating two-hour sit, you know? Um, whatever it is that you glimpsed should be for you a lived reality. That's our goal. And it is possible. It is attested to by many spiritual masters. And deep down, you intuitively know that this state is not only yours for the taking, but is here now. So it's only a matter of relaxing completely into what is already present for you. It is your birthright, as we said two weeks ago, to live in this state. 
you know? And so let's share now the three pillars of spiritual practice. You might have one of the two, you might have two of, uh, of the three, but it isn't until you have all three pillars of spiritual practice that your practice is guaranteed to give you some fruit. And there's a bonus fourth pillar, which we'll talk about also. Okay, so let's get into it. Now, before we share the three pillars, some context. The theory is incredibly important. If you just practiced without any theoretical grounding, what will happen is you will just get power, but you won't know what to do with it. So again, Christopher Wallace says nicely, a jerk will just become a more effective jerk. Because that, that's what yoga does. It gives you power, makes your body and mind incredibly strong. But if you don't know what that power is for, if you don't really understand what it is you're feeling, that is, if you don't really have, yes, if you don't really have the theoretical framework to contextualize your practice, practice alone won't do it for you, you know? However, most people, they don't, uh, their problem is too much theory, too little practice. Very rarely do we find people with too much practice and no theory, though it does happen. So today, really, our lecture is going to be about moving from theory to practice. But the first disclaimer is that theory is indispensable. Remember, last week during Buddha Purnima, we talked about Buddhism and the first, and it's hard to say the first since it, it's, a, it's a wheel, right? So you can kind of look at it any which way. But one of the spokes in the Ashtanga Marga, the eight-spoked wheel or the eightfold path of Buddhism, or we could say the central spoke is Samyak Drishti, which means right view, right spiritual orientation, right theoretical framework. It's only from that that you get all the other Samyaks, all the other right live, you know, livelihood, right mindfulness, right meditation. Um, so you must first understand what this is all about, and only then can you put it into practice. So we'll recap some of the central ideas that we've developed together over the past few weeks, and we'll look into the possibility of these ideas to radically free you from the suffering that seems to be your day-to-day -day experience of life. Okay, first thing, death. Now, death seems to be one of the biggest sources of grief in life. The very fact that you are going to die causes you to feel an abject terror that is often felt not towards death, but to other mini instances in which you are reminded of death. So losing all your money, for instance, you come up against your fear of death when you look at your money and you conflate your finances with security and you conflate your security with livelihood. Do you see? The fear of death is so pervasive that it rears its heads the moment you think of your money, for instance. And, and, and it's hard to find a person in this world without some degree of financial distress. You know, uh, I think it was Quincy Jones, uh, Westerfer is a musician in the room, he'll, he'll correct us. I think it was Quincy Jones who said, uh, uh, God walks out of the room when you start thinking about money. <laughs> But all this obsession about money, about growing wealth, is, is really an obsession with security. And that is really an obsession with immortality. And that is really a fear of death, you know, coming in one way. Then also we fear obscurity. I mean, we want people to remember our name. We want people to know us. And so we chase fame. Uh, it, it can be in the form of being like a superstar, or it can be in a small way, like trying to increase followers, you know, or something like that. We're all of us afraid of obscurity because we're worried that if people don't know us, that if people forget us, we're going to die. You know, so there again, we feel that fear of death. 
So whether it's pertaining to money, whether it's pertaining to fame, the root cause of all of your distress and anxiety is your inability to understand death and come to terms with it, you know. So you'll see it in California. It's very pre prevalent with like the vitamins industry, you know, with Botox and plastic surgery, with old folks homes and the taboos around saying the word death on Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, our reluctance to speak of death, our preponderance for pseudonyms about death. Oh, he passed away. Sorry, honey, your goldfish is in a better place. You know, like all of our pseudonyms, all of our activities, if you look closely enough, you will see that somehow, in some sense, they are related to this fundamental issue, death, and our inability to come to terms with it. We don't know what it is. We don't know what will happen when the body dies. And so we do our best to distract ourselves from having to answer that question. Caleb says, so you're telling me my goldfish died? <laughs> the Easter bunny myth, the Santa Claus myth. <laughs> no, Caleb, I'm not here to tell you anything. Don't believe a word I say. <laughs> Just the drunken fool rambling at you. Okay. So um, if we look at the root of it, we see that spirituality first and foremost must answer your query about death. It must answer to you in a way that checks out in reason, but can also be verified through your experience. Um, what is death and what happens to you when the body dies? Just mere promises won't do it alone. You know, so uh, thank you, RYN. So remember, um, most religions, and that is exoteric institutions of spiritual learning, uh, most of them accrue huge amounts of power because they're based off an economy of assuaging fear. That is, they peddle to you beliefs that make you feel a little better about death. You know, uh, they say, don't worry, there is an afterlife. Just take my word for it. When the body dies, you'll be able to hang out with some virgins. You know, you'll be able to drink some milk and honey ad infinitum in this eternal Sunday realm if you will. It will always be Sunday and you'll hang out with Morgan Freeman, God. <laughs> yes, I always make these uh, references to 2000s movies and they always fall flat. So excuse that. Um, but, you know, there are these promises about death, but here's the deal. You don't really believe them. And in fact, there is nothing that's really very convincing about them. You know, it's hard to accept that there is this eternal Sunday realm of milk and honey. It's even harder to accept this now when much of the myths of religion are being overturned, you know? Um, and a big mistake that a lot of these religions make were being literal. So no longer are their gospels symbolic, poetic, and artful expressions of an eternal truth. They become literal doctrines of literal figures who lived in literal places. And when historical studies and when scientific studies ultimately show that those people didn't live in those places at those times, the entire structure falls down. The house of cards has been destroyed by the big bad wolf of science, so to speak. You know, and so less and less are these uh, beliefs about death believable. And you know, even if you look at the most devout religious person, you will find a cognitive dissonance because on the surface, they say they believe these aphorisms about death. But if you investigate their actions, they act in, in uh, ways that are really self-preserving. You know, um, there, there, there's a kind of cognitive, cognitive dissonance that pervades entire religious structures. And that's why many of people have turned away from them. You know, so the problem 
inherent in religion is that our religious leaders cannot answer the questions that are most important to answer. You know, the moment you start interrogating them about this book or that book, uh, they're dead ends. And the ultimate answer is just take it on faith. And they get a bit scared the moment you start asking questions and they say to you, but the devil knows the Bible better than you. And, 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 and then, you know, all intellectual inquiry is ended at that point. So um, people are turning away from those structures of power because they're not able to offer believable answers. And this is endemic to every religious institution. Hindus are supposed to accept the existence of God, uh, gods on, on faith. They're supposed to accept Vaikuntha and Punya and, and, and Karma. Uh, Christians are supposed to accept uh, notions of heaven and hell, uh, and, and all of that. So this is certainly endemic to every religious institution. Okay, so we're not able to answer the question of death. Now, science has taken up this question, but science as we know it today is primarily oriented towards understanding the world outside without really saying much about the world inside. You know, one rebuttal we can offer to these enlightened scientists is, if you are so smart, why are you so sad, you know? So what? You are able to follow with precision the movement of a certain comet, yet you remain numb to the movements of your own heart, you know? Can't even have a conversation with a Tinder date, you know, without mansplaining some quantum mechanics and not getting late that night. Do you see there's a little bit of a trope with the science camp? They're overly heady, hiding behind these intellectual concepts, but there's no juice there. There's a lot of sadness, a lot of depression, a lot of frustration. Even there, there's a cognitive dissonance, you know? I think there's a beautiful Rumi poem. I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, Rumi says something like this. What's the value in knowing the price of everything in the marketplace if you do not know even the worth of your own soul? You know, kind of a dig at economists. Uh, yeah, going to use that line up, my friend. So the idea is that people get really excited about scientific concepts, a life of the mind, but it ignores the life of the heart, you know? So there can be a great level of depression. These ideas maybe describe the world in some way that allows us to do fancy things. Uh, and we get excited because we can light up a city for a year, if only to hide our fear of the dark, right? Um, but what is this, this ability to light up cities? Uh, my mother eats cities for breakfast, with her hurricane teeth and her cyclone tongue. You know, do not rest so smug in your civilizations. Uh, a flood is all it takes to, to crumble these walls that we covet so much. And it's during a time of like COVID when we realize, wow, uh, things fall apart, as a famous poet once said. The center cannot hold. Uh, Yeats, yes. Mm. The center cannot hold. Uh, and for some reason, we don't learn this lesson. We read Ozymandias Rex, we read the Shelley poem, and we realize that all monoliths of kings have fallen to rubble. And yet here we are building new monoliths. You know, each tower that we build will crumble, yet we have faith in them. But, you know, here's the thing. The cogniz cognitive dissonance is that we know this. Deep down inside, we know our cities, although they can assuage us for a time, are ultimately vulnerable to nature, ultimately vulnerable to forces far greater than science. And we might cling on to what we call as materialist, uh, materialistic optimism, that what we don't understand now, we might someday understand. Isn't that also a faith-based approach? Do you realize both approaches, religion and science, are both faith-based approaches. It's just that they put their stock in different things. Uh, and both of them feel a level of cognitive dissonance because you're not totally able to buy into their belief structures. 
deep down inside, it's still not quite scratching the itch. Now, with science, for instance, with materialist science, here's our predicament. We live in a world, as we described a couple of lectures ago, that is predominantly unknowable. You know, 96% of this world, as our modern science reports, uh, is made of this property, dark matter or dark energy, which sounds a little bit more dramatic than it is. It just means an unknowable quotient in the calculations of physics. You know, so we don't really know what it is, uh, and we don't really know how to find out what it is. The Hadron Collider uh, at CERN has been working on this a lot, uh, but it's frustrating, you know, what is the Higgs boson? And, 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 and so we've got that problem, dark matter, dark energy. Then of the 4% of the world that is knowable, 99.9% .9 of that um, is invisible. You know, it's interstellar dust that cannot really be, be seen. Uh, of the 2% or 0.2 or 0.1% that can be seen, welcome Amanda, uh, we call this a, the atomic universe. And don't worry, it's, it's pretty large. Some trillions of inhabitable galaxies. It's a big, big portion of the universe. Uh, but of this 0.2% uh, that's made of atoms, most of these atoms too are becoming less and less believable to us as a theory. You know, so where before we could sleep at night trusting that the table was a thing, the moment we look at it, we realize, no, this table is made of atoms and Dalton's atom is replaced by Rutherford's atom, which is mostly empty space. Rutherford is replaced by Niels Bohr, who is replaced by modern quantum mechanics that say there aren't even electrons orbiting. It's just regions of electron probability known as clouds. The bicycle tire, you know, uh, model, their, their string theory. And, and basically, this is to say that the more we look for matter, the more elusive it becomes. We know what matter does, but we don't know what matter is. We call this the hard problem of matter. Now you can compound that with what we call in philosophy, the hard problem of consciousness, which is, look, I know all this about the world, but I'm sad. I know everything about the universe, but I know nothing about my own heart. I know nothing about the inner world. I'm hoping the outer world can tell me something about the inner world, but it hasn't yet. Okay, let's just science our way into the inner kingdom. Let's try to isolate a thought. Let's try to figure out what consciousness is. So we hook up meditators to MRI machines. We give people some acid and we look through a telescope to see what happens in the brain. And we have some pretty sophisticated theories about like alpha waves and beta waves. You know, phrenology has come a long way from feeling for the bumps in people's heads to now looking at electrical impulses. But whether it's bumps or whether it's electrical impulses, we are still unable to show with any scientific precision, what exactly a thought is or what exactly an emotion is. We can say, okay, neurosynaptic fibers firing, but that doesn't describe emotion. The word instinct is just a plug-in. It doesn't describe why we have ancestral memory, uh, why the chick knows to be afraid of the eagle, even though the mother hen hasn't taught it that. You know, we don't really understand why a mother is able to lift the car to save her baby. We don't really understand these isolated instances of uh, near-death experiences in which people have out-of-body experiences. We try our best to reduce it to just the brain, uh, this very elusive thing called the brain. And so we now are confronted with this model, which we take on faith. The brain produces awareness. And the body makes the brain and the brain produces awareness. But if you've been following so far, you know that matter is mostly empty space. So how can this emptiness be creating awareness? How can awareness be coming out of nothing? Actually, a very Buddhist notion. Um, but um, how is it that empty matter 
you know, which we are dividing into, you know, elusive quarks, which we just now call flavors. How can this be giving us this, you know? Um, and how do we know? How do we know that consciousness emerges from the brain? What's our assurance? You know, this, I think, um, humbly, is an axiom that we take on faith, much like every other axiom we take on faith. The axioms of logic that Aristotle gave us, the axioms of Euclidean geometry that we got from Euclid. Um, but spirituality begins, and this is really the start of spirituality. Spirituality begins when you're finally able to admit to yourself that you know nothing, you know. Whether you're a faithful religious person who has believed in these concepts of heaven and God, at some point you realize they're not doing anything for me. I still suffer. I'm still angry. I know nothing. When you can say that, truthfully say, I really don't know this God of the Bible. I don't know the God of the Quran. I don't really understand the heaven of the Torah. You know, when you can say that, um, that's when spirituality begins. Okay. Hi. <laughs> Yay. When a scientist is able to look at the world around them and say, I can turn on a light and light up, I can turn on a switch and light up a city, but I still am afraid of the dark. I still struggle in relationships. I still feel a sort of lack of meaning. I don't know. I, I don't get it. Only then does spirituality begin. So let's start with this. Your most genuine spirituality begins when you are finally ready to question all of your axioms about life. When you're finally ready to examine all of the unexamined assumptions that have been handed to you by the world in which you live. They've been handed to you by well-meaning parents, guardians, and society. They've been handed to you as part of this survival program that seems to do a good job of keeping the body alive here in the West, uh, but for some reason stagnating the, the mind or the soul or the heart, what have you. You know, so once you can do this, then you, you can say you're on the path, you know. Uh, but unless you're able to admit wholeheartedly that you know nothing, that's your first obstacle. So if we're looking for an interruption between knowledge and wisdom, that interruption is dogma, is belief, it's assumption, it's axiom, it's something that we irrationally hold on to because we're afraid of what will happen when we let go of it. What will happen to you really when you stop believing in the concept of a heaven or a God? What will really happen to you when you stop believing in the concept of matter and an emergent thing called consciousness that comes from matter? You know, what's the real risk there? Investigate that. And underneath it, you'll see a fear of death. You know, you're afraid to give up these beliefs uh, because these beliefs protect you from uncertainty, which is ultimately what death is, you know. So in Tantra, we call spiritual practitioners Veera. Veera means heroes uh, or warriors uh, because it takes a real heroic temperament to begin a spiritual quest. Because you might think you're the most enlightened person there is and you come to an asana class and you realize just how much of a wimp you really are. Do you know what I mean? You might think like you're this ultimate uh, enlightened being and then you, you're asked to do a headstand and you're terrified. You know, just to go upside down for a moment, the, the, the prospect of falling over scares you to your very bones. What's the worth of your enlightenment? You know, you really thought you were far along the path and then your hamstring started to ache a little bit and you cried. You know, uh, a, a yogi once said, I have given you wisdom 
and it is like a sword and a shield against grief and uncertainty. Yet you come back to me, having sustained a few slaps from the enemy, and now here you are crying. Ha! You see? So you really come to see where you're not when you take your spirituality onto the mat, into the world. You know, that's why asana is good. You know, the physical practice of spirituality uh, really shows you truths about yourself that perhaps a mental practice uh, was veiling you from. That's the nature of the mind. It likes to protect you from harsh truths. Then you might believe we are all one. You know, we're, we're all one man. And then you go out into the world and someone gets your goat. Your parent says something about, so do you have a job yet? And you're triggered and gone is all this, we're all oneness. You know, so we kind of come apart at the seams when our spirituality is put to the test. And often it's because we're clinging on to axioms. So that's the first step. Root out every axiom you have about yourself and about the world. How do you know? Keep asking yourself this question. How do you know? You know, oh, um, I can't be a writer because nobody makes money as a writer. How do you know? Who told you that? And what's the evidence? You know, um, my body is debilitated. I can't do this or that. How, how do you know? You know, uh, when my body dies, I will die. So start now the practice of always checking yourself. The moment you make a statement, ask the question, how do you know? And if someone says, uh, Jesus is the savior, how do you know? You know, um, there is no God. How do you know? <laughs> you see, so this kind of radical skepticism is not cynicism. It's not saying there's nothing that can be known. It's simply opening up yourself to the possibility that what you think you know isn't actually the way things are, you know, and science understands this very well. Newtonian mechanics is different from Einsteinian mechanics. So you can't believe in both at the same time. In Newtonian mechanics, gravity is a force between two massive bodies. Not so in Einsteinian mechanics. In Einstein's worldview, gravity is really about a distortion in the space-time matrix when big objects make dents in it. They're two very different theories, yet we use them both in different places. When you want to find Halley's Comet, use Newton. When you're studying quantum mechanics, use Einstein. The very fact that science is able to maintain two mutually exclusive theories at the same time is because implicitly the project of Western material science understands that science can be instrumentally true without being ontologically true. And let's unpack what we mean by that. Just because something works, just because because we know what something does doesn't know doesn't mean we know what it is just because you can use electricity just because you know the effects or consequences of electricity says nothing about how much you know about electricity you know so you might know nothing about metaphysics or ontology yet be very well versed in in technology you know do you see the distinction so just because something works doesn't mean it's true so that's why we open ourselves up to the possibility of not knowing. This uh, being comfortable with uncertainty is a beautiful place to be. So what is science then? If science is to you a body of knowledge or a series of axioms that you buy into, then what you have is no better than religion, is no better than a dead-end dogma complex. But science at its best is a method. It's a radically empowering method to be put into the hands of each and every person so they can go on their own quest for discovery. As such, all Buddhist meditation, all yoga, 
all genuine spiritual practice, all Sufi practice, all Christian mysticism is a science because it says to you, do not take anything on faith, find out for yourself. So the axioms become true when they become a lived experience for you. You know, right now you all intuit their truth, but soon it will be more than just that. Now, remember, the founders of all the world religions also didn't take things on faith, mind you. They had actual experiences, perceptual experiences of divinity, whether it was a burning bush speaking to them, whether it was an angel in the Tower Mountains, angel Jibril giving the Surah Al-Ansa the first surah that the Prophet Muhammad received. This wasn't a matter of faith. The Prophet Muhammad, uh, uh, Abraham, uh, Moses, Jesus, all had direct personal experiences of divinity. You know, The great mistake then is to presume that Jesus, the Buddha, the Prophet Muhammad, um, any spiritual leader is somehow different from you, that they're somehow special, that they possess qualities that you don't possess, that you will never be able to have a direct encounter with divinity. No, if you look closely at all of the world religions, the promise is that you will come to experience divinity if you practice correctly. So science says, don't take things on faith. What you're allowed to take on faith is a method. So a method is something that you have faith in provisionally in order to experience the outcome. So that's what an experiment is. Okay, so one, question the axioms. Two, do not take those axioms on faith, but allow yourself some openness, some provisional faith in the methods that give you personal direct verification for the truths that those methods espouse. All right. So let's look at a different model, knowing that we're at a dead end in science. You know, we call this the hard problem of matter, the hard problem of consciousness, knowing that we're at a dead end in religion. Um, uh, There's no formal philosophical word for this dead end. Let's just call it the hard problem of the clueless rabbi, (laughs) the hard problem of your spiritual leaders not being able to answer your questions. And also in the field of social sciences, we're encountering a problem where the world seems to be unsurpassably full of suffering. No matter how many charity organizations we start, no no matter how many humanitarian missions we initiate, uh, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, every mole you whack, a new one appears. There's actually even a story, uh, an Indian story that Swami Vivekananda recounts in his book, Karma Yoga. He says, one day uh, there was a man who learned about the possibility of acquiring a ghost, a supernatural power, acquiring a ghost who would do his work for him. And he was told that if one were to acquire a ghost, he could have all of his desires fulfilled because the ghost would see to it that every one of his needs was met. So, you know, the man searched far and wide, looking for someone who could teach him how to conquer a ghost, how to get his his own personal uh, uh, ghost, you know. So one day he meets a yogi and he says to the yogi, you are a great and powerful sage. Uh, Can you give me a ghost? And the yogi looks at him with disgust and say, no, no, my child, have no interest in these occult abilities. They won't serve you. Just focus on your own spiritual practice. And the man said, no, please, please. And he's crying and he's weeping. And the yogi, finally, in order to get rid of this man, said, fine, fine, I'll teach you. I'll give you a mantra. You go into the forest late in the night at this time, 3.33 or whatever, you chant the mantra and you will obtain a ghost. The ghost will be at your service. But I must warn you, Oh, hello. (laughs) I must warn you, if you acquire a ghost, you must not allow this ghost to be without a task. That's the disclaimer. If this ghost becomes restless, 
us. If you don't give it a task, it will devour you whole. And the man says, are you kidding? My desires are inexhaustible. This ghost is going to be the busiest ghost in the world. I'm going to put it to work, bro. Just you wait and see. And the guru says, yeah, fine, fine. And you know, this man, now that he's empowered with the mantra, goes into the forest late, late at night and he begins to chant. You know, in all seriousness, he begins to chant. And lo and behold, a fearsome apparition appears before him. And the ghost says, you have overpowered me with your mantra. I am now under your command. But if I am left idle, I will devour you. And the man says, fine, all right, let's get to work. Okay, first order of business. I want a palace made entirely of jewels. The ghost is like, snaps his fingers, the palace of jewels appears. And he goes, okay, um, cool. Now I want a harem full of the most beautiful courtesans. And the ghost goes, yep. And it appears. And he goes, um, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Fabrizio. <laughs> and he goes, um, okay, uh, now I want... Uh, uh, you know, the man's getting kind of scared now because he realizes his desires weren't inexhaustible. He has fame, he has love. And he says, okay, I want to be the ultimate Maharaja of the entirety of this universe and snaps the fingers and, and, and he is, you know, he's crowned king of all the seven realms, if you will. And then the man starts to get desperate. And he goes, uh, okay, you chop down this forest. And, and the ghost does that. He chops down the forest and he goes, uh, uh, bring me some of this. And the ghost does that. And now the man realizes the predicament he's in. The ghost is able to fulfill his desires faster than he's able to have them. So he runs back to the yogi and he says, guru, guru. Hi, Grace. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. I was just with, with Grace. So the, the yogi runs back. Uh, he runs back to the yogi and he says, look, I got the ghost. Uh, but I've run out of desires and he's going to eat me now. I, I have nothing left to tell the ghost. Uh, it's kind of like the Rick and Morty episode with the me sixes. Yeah. So it's like that. Um, and so the yogi says, huh, didn't I tell you this was going to happen? Fine. Here's what you do. You look at that dog and the, the guy looks and he sees the dog and he says, do you see how the dog's tail is curly? He says, okay, yes, I see that. Ask the ghost to straighten the dog's tail. And the ghost appears in the cave and is about to devour the man. And the man says, I have one more task for you. Straighten the dog's tail. And the ghost goes and he, he says, okay, fine. He straightens the tail. But when he releases it, the tail becomes curly again. And he straightens the tail and he releases it. The tail becomes curly again. And no matter how many times he straightens the tail, the tail continues to become curly and the dog just barks happily. And then the dog dies and the tail continues to be curly and the man is saved. And the ghost comes back to the man and driven mad by this task of uncurling the dog's tail. He says, look, listen, I, uh, I, I'm a veteran ghost, G. I, I have been ghosting for a long time. I've been in this business longer than this civilization. And never have I encountered so futile a task. I tell you what, free me from your service and I'll let you keep everything I've given you. And I promise I won't eat you. So the man releases him and they're all happy, happy ever, happily ever. Okay, so you see, this is a metaphor. The tail of the dog refers to the problems of the world. We literally call it nirvana fallacy in philosophy. If you think you can end poverty, end HIV, end environmental destruction, end all of these things, the idea that you can permanently create a utopia is exactly the, the, the road to hell paved by good intentions that the missionaries of the 18th century and 19th century walked. They, you know, I, they weren't out just to steal other people's resources. And, you know, they were actually moved by a genuine desire to help the world, to build railroads, to create hygiene, you know, out of this desire to um, 
um, globalize the world because that way we could all live in one global Starbucks. But any trip to Starbucks will show you the unhappiness there, you know? Look at the uh, the 30-something-year-old who is throwing an absolute temper tantrum because the honey quotient isn't quite right. Look to Sweden, all of your powerful first world nations in which cradle to grave, sorry, uh, welfare and all these systems are so developed like in Singapore, yet look at the depression, look at the sadness. No amount of globalizing the world, of feeding people, of improving social institutions will really create lasting happiness. And we call this the straightening of the dog's curly tail. Yes. Okay. So here's our predicament. Our predicament is this. You see the world as separate from you. You see God as separate from you. You see consciousness as emerge. Yes, it is, Amanda. Does that mean we stop working for the world? No. In fact, next week, we'll do a lecture on karma yoga. And we'll talk about uh, work as spiritual practice. And hint, hint, kind of a a spoiler for the upcoming episode. Uh, The reason you work to improve the world is not actually for the world. It's hubris to think that you can do anything. It's like dropping a cup of fresh water into an ocean, thinking you will unsalt the ocean in your lifetime, you know? Uh, But it matters to this starfish, (laughs) you know about that? No, it's about you. You work because it's a means for you to come into truth. Um, And you'll see that hopefully next week. So that's a, a hint. Continue to work in the world. Continue to straighten the curly tail uh, because it's actually beneficial to your own spirituality. Yes? Okay. So here's our predicament. If you believe God is up there in the sky, if you believe uh, matter exists, if you buy into the unexamined assumptions of science, uh, if you believe that your work is to end all suffering in the world, you come up against a lot of very frustrating dead ends. Religion is at a dead end, science is at a dead end, social work is at a dead end. Now, all of these ventures, all of these human enterprises, you know, science, the quest for external truth, religion, the quest for internal truth, social science, the quest for the truth of interpersonal relationships, all of these ventures are doomed, perhaps because they're all premised on the wrong axioms. So just as a thought experiment, just for fun, let's examine a different axiom. What if instead awareness as an emergent property from the brain, what if instead we said the brain was an emergent property from awareness? And again, don't take this on faith. Don't believe a word I say. Let's test it. Let's see if this is true. Let's apply it to our immediate experience of life here and now. And we've all done this experiment together before. Okay, bottle, Ayurvedic copper water bottle. A lot of you don't even have the concept Ayurvedic copper water bottle. You notice you live in a world of concepts. You look at something and you say tree. You have the concept tree. Uh, You look at grace and you have the concept angel. (laughs) You know, you look at people and you have concepts. Uh, But until you see the thing, you don't really have the concept. So a lot of people don't have the concept Tibetan singing bowl until I show them one. Now there is a concept in your mind, Tibetan singing bowl. Your world has been expanded. It's been meaningfully enriched because I've added a new concept, you know. But what is the essence of concept? In other words, if you were to look at the very heart of a concept, what would you find? When we say essence, we mean that by which a thing cannot exist. The essence of a thing is the thing that allows it to be. 
You know, so if we look at a concept, the essence of a concept, the one thing that no concept can be without is sensory experience. Sensation is the essence of concept. So this shape, this kind of texture, this color, this, this sound, these form the essence of the concept Tibetan singing bowl. This shape, the roundness, the length, um, the color creates for you the concept water bottle, Ayurvedic copper water bottle. Okay. Now, is there such a thing as Ayurvedic water bottle, the concept Ayurvedic water bottle apart from the sensory data? You might say, yes, yes, there is. But no, look at this. Where did it go? Where is it? Is there such a thing here known as the concept of Ayurvedic copper water bottle? And you might say, no, no, it's in my memory. How good is that worth? You know, what is, what is memory really? Uh, we have in, uh, what do you call it? Um, psychology, something known as the Loftbus paradigm. So if you're interested to see the kind of ephemeral quality of memory, you can look at this study. It's a very interesting way to show how uh, people usually remember falsely and how memory is not really a reliable source of information. So you shouldn't be basing anything on faith, right? Um, let's just deal with things as you see them. Don't have faith in memory either. Don't have faith in any authority. Just interact with your immediate perception of this experience. The concept Ayurvedic water bottle does not exist apart from the sensation of this one. Now we ask the second question. What is the essence of the sensation? What is that by which sensation occurs? And the answer is obviously sense organs, sight, the perception. So perceiving is the essence of a perception experience. Now we can experiment with this too. Uh, close your eyes. Is there such a thing as the shape, color, and sound of this thing apart from your perception of it? You might say yes, but again, you're appealing to memory and you're appealing to some level of faith. If you truly interact with this experiment without dealing with faith, by just examining your immediate perception here and now, it seems that in your perceptual experience, the essence of all concepts is uh, sensation and the essence of all sensation is sensing. If you didn't have the faculty of sensing, no amount of Ayurvedic copper water bottles could exist. Do you realize? This is also why some of you don't have concepts for things you haven't yet seen, even though they have been there before your eyes. Isn't that funny? Sometimes I can put something in front of you and you won't even see it. That shows you that there's something else going on. Behind sensation, there is one other thing, and that is awareness. Without that awareness, you wouldn't have sensation. It doesn't matter how many sets of eyes you have. You could have 200 eyes. You could have as many arms as one of those Hindu deities, you know, that Christian missionaries love to mock. Uh, it doesn't matter how many limbs, how many eyes, how many tongues you have. If you don't have uh, awareness, you're not able to experience anything. So obviously, the root of all concepts, and if you follow this closely, you can verify it here and now. The root of all concepts is sensation. The root of all sensation is sensing, and the root of all sensing is awareness. 
Without awareness, none of those things could be. How do you test this? Very simple. Show me one thing that exists apart from your awareness. Can you do it? Can you prove the existence of anything apart from awareness? You might say, duh, can. What about that distant star that you can't see? Is that not also in your awareness? I mean, the concept, distant star, is that not in awareness? You say, Nish, come on, let's be real. If we all left this room, are you trying to tell me this room no longer exists because no one is around to be aware of it? I can prove to you that this room exists apart from people with awareness. Let me show you. And you, you say, let's go. You, we all get up and we all step out of the room and you set up a video camera and you videotape the room and we all leave and we come back and then you show me your footage and you're like, aha, look at that. The room is here. Nobody was in it, yet the camera doesn't lie, right? The room is here. Okay, but even the data of camera displaying room is in awareness. Do you not see the predicament? Nothing can be shown to exist apart from awareness. So if you say the body creates consciousness, you're taking something on faith. You're saying that the body can exist apart from consciousness slash awareness. But you haven't yet been able to show me that this is true. Except by faith, you know? I'm just supposed to believe the mind produces awareness when in fact my perceptual experience shows me the opposite. Nothing exists apart from awareness. Let's go a little further, friends. What about your body? What is a body? And, a, and for a lot of us, a body is nothing more than a concept. You know, we look into a mirror and we say, that's my body, you know? Uh, but any anorexic will tell you what she sees is not actually what's there. You know, uh, you look at Instagram, you look at a photo, uh, you realize that you have a concept of body that has nothing to do with your actual body. So let's examine now. Don't take anything on faith. Don't take any concepts on faith. Don't let anybody tell you what your body is or isn't. Let's just investigate now together what a body really is. Is the body, and here's my proposal, is the body really anything more than moment-to-moment -moment sensation experiences? You know? So follow this closely. What you consider to be a body, is it really anything more than the taste of tea, than the stretch of the hamstrings, than the feeling of sweat in the armpits? I don't know, whatever sensation you might be able to experience, that's what a body is, isn't it? The body is a mass of sensation. Uh, in the piano incident, you might have a near-death experience and float above yourself and be aware of you on the ground. Yeah, we have all these interesting things. And Anisha says B theory of time. Yes, time is a concept. Exactly. So, um, oh, yes, yes. No, no, I'm happy. I'm happy. Please, please continue. So um, it seems like you cannot show the existence of anything apart from awareness. The body is nothing more than a sensation within awareness. And what do you know about sensation? It comes and it goes. Uh, sensation is in you. When you taste the tea, when you look at a tree, 
Oh, I love that rhyme scheme there, unintentional. Uh, it's the kind of event that happens in your mind. There's something, let's just say there's something in the world. Let's just take the world on faith. There's something out there um, that creates some kind of effect on the retina, some kind of effect on the tongue. And then my mind assigns an image, tree or tea. Uh, and, and, and while that's going on in the mind, your awareness is just the ground in which this sensation comes and goes. But look at this. You can try it now. If you have some tea nearby, you can pick up the tea. Sip it. Cheers. And, and notice what's going on. When you sip the tea, there is, for a moment, the emergence of a sense event. Not wine, <laughs> Fabricio. <laughs> there is, for a moment, a flavor. It comes, so to speak, out of nowhere. You suddenly taste something. That flavor sticks around for a little while and then it totally disappears. Sensation arises and disappears. Yet your mind, that is the ability for you to perceive, seems to be unaffected. It's not like your mind ended with the sensation, right? You, you were ready for the next sensation. After you sipped your tea and after the flavor of tea vanished, uh, there was a new sensation, which is the sound of this drunken monkey's voice, uh, the sound of your refrigerator humming, the texture of your cloth resting so lovingly on your skin. It seems like you persist at the end of sensation. If your body, follow this closely, if your body is nothing more than a mass of sensations, why do you believe having now had the perceptual experience of surviving the end of sensation, why do you believe that the end of the body sensation is necessarily the end of you? It's, it's infallible logic premised on your immediate perception of here and now. It takes nothing on faith. Uh, good night, Anisha. Thank you so much for coming. Yes, all of this will be available on the Patreon tonight. So uh, if you do have to go, don't worry, we have the recording and it's, it's always going to be here for you. So thank you. Uh, so let's change the perspective now. If we see uh, the awareness as emerging from the body, then you have something very real to fear. You fear death. Uh, you fear the death of your loved ones because you actually believe that when your loved one's body dies, they die, you know? And that causes a lot of anxiety. Um, then you get obsessed with money. Because remember how we said in the beginning of the lecture, the desire to increase your wealth is really an obsession with security. And obsession with security is really just not being able to deal with death, not being able to understand what death is. And so you're doing your best to preserve your life. You know, because you see if the body dies, you'll die, right? So you need to have lots of money. Because if you don't have $30,000 in your saving accounts right now, uh, you won't be able to eat and then you will die. You know, so when you lose money, it actually feels like a threat to your life. When someone disagrees with you or you lose followers or you feel a sense of obscurity, it actually feels um, like you're dying. It feels like a threat to your existence because you have premised your existence on the body and on the mind. But if you just flip the paradigm, and it's, it's not something you take on faith, if you can just feel into the truth here and now of the body being in awareness as opposed to awareness being in the body, then immediately you can relax. 
And ultimately, that's why this philosophy is the most practical out there, uh, because it allows you to first and foremost deal with death in a way that frees you from the fear of it. You know, okay, we'll go a little further, um, adding one more concept. Last week, we did the dreamer, the sleeper, and the waker. We won't do that again today, but the, uh, the, uh, Okay, so Yash answered a good question. Can't you do a control test to verify this? That's exactly um, what we just discussed. You know, so we just said, yeah, a lot of people try. You can set up a camera um, and, okay, here's, we've controlled all the variables. There's no consciousnesses in the room. There's no one present to perceive the room. Yet the camera perceived it. But isn't the data still in, the, in, in awareness? And, and here's a trap. It's very easy to conflate awareness with the mind. Uh, but we won't really get into that nuance yet. We will in a little bit, uh, because now let's just try to get through some of this theory. I want to offer one more to you. It won't be the dreamer and the dream. Like most of you already realize that when you are in the dream world, you really believe that that's reality. You know, you forget all about your waking world problems and you buy into your dream completely. Similarly, in this dream, in the waking dream, you buy into the reality of this completely. But all of it disappears when you enter deep sleep. Now, when you think about a mind, what you call a mind is merely one of three flavors of awareness. So follow this closely. To you, the mind is really just your waking experience of life. You know, now that's usually what we refer to as mind. My mind is able to perceive my waking world problems. I have waking world relationships. Uh, but then when you go into sleep and you go into dream, uh, you forget all about your wife, husband, friend. You forget all about your savings account. You forget everything that was real to you when you were awake. And you enter a new kind of reality, which is called a dream reality. And you might say, okay, that's also still the mind. But what about deep sleep? In deep sleep, there is an absence of the waking dream. And there is also an absence of the dream dream. Yet you're still there. And if this is not the case, you should be surprised every time you wake up after deep sleep, but you're not. Every time you wake up after having slept dreamlessly, you usually yawn and sigh with contentment and say, ah, I slept like a log. Now, the only thing you should ask is who is that I? Who is the I that is now reporting to me an absence of the ego? Meaning that I was not Nish. Nish is only real in the waking dream. When Nish goes to sleep, he's like Jimmy Page or something you know, playing in Led Zeppelin in the dream world. Uh, but in deep sleep, Nish is not Nish, nor is he even Jimmy Page. Yet there remains some level of individuality there. So this is how we distinguish awareness from the mind. There are three flavors of awareness. You might think that you are in the dream, but when you wake up from the dream, you realize the dream was in you. This gives you tremendous relief. It doesn't matter how bad your dream is. When you wake up, you're like, ah, none of that was real. Do you notice that? You often wake up from a dream relieved because it's not real. And it's not real because it was just in you. Similarly, when you go into deep sleep, the waking self dis dissolves too. So ultimately, we're able to conclude this. And this is our conclusion. Awareness contains waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Good night, Christina. Thank you for coming. Awareness contains waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. 
Your awareness is not the mind of waking, nor is it the mind of dreaming, nor is it the no mind of deep sleep. It is the one that is aware of all three. So here's the first practical idea for you. The problem is remembering it, but to remember something, you must first first be exposed to it. So here's a first practical kind of insight. Notice that this is an object. You know, this is a seen object. The eyes are the one that is seeing the object. So the eyes are the seer. It's very obvious to you now that the seer and the scene are different. Yes, this is a given. I am not the bottle. I am the one looking at the bottle. So there is a difference between the seer and the scene. Next, don't you notice that while the scene are a plurality, the seer is one? So you kind of sense that you are one thing, whereas the world is many things. The world is the scene, your eyes are the seer. So now you say to yourself, I am not the world. I am this one. Yes, Beth, and you are God, as you will soon see. Uh, I, am, I am this one, and this is the world. So if you follow this line of reasoning, the seer and the scene are different, and the world is the scene, the world of plurality is seen by a kind of unity, you will arrive at a very interesting conclusion. If the seer is different from the scene, and if the bottle is the scene and my eyes are the seer, this is very subtle philosophy. So, you know, just, just maybe marinate in the mystery of it if it's not immediately available to you. Uh, but the scene is different from the seer. But who is seeing my eyes? So surely there is something in me, my mind, that is able to stand in relation to my eyes the same way my eyes stand in relation to the um, cup or the bottle. So that means I'm not my eyes since I am able to see my eyes. It's, it's very subtle. Don't worry. I don't want, it's not a, this is not really a Vedanta class. I just, I'm kind of moving through some of these theories very quickly. So in one fell swoop, if I agree that the seer and the scene are different, and if I agree that the see, scene are many, but the seer is one, I have in one fell swoop proven to you now that you are not the body. You are the one that is aware of the body. And you might say, okay, the mind is aware of the body. So I'm the mind, right? No, 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 no. There is another thing that can see the mind. So the mind can become a seen object in relation to awareness. So do not conflate this awareness with Nish. Nish is the mind. What makes up Nish is just a series of thoughts, just a conglomerate of ideas handed down to this one by his parents, by his society, by his friends. What I really am is not that. What I am is the one that is aware of Nish. Okay, if you can just remember this, if you can just continually feel into the vibration of this one idea, every time something happens to you in your life that is displeasing, usually it's suffering in the level of the mind. Meaning if there's pain in the body, if you feel some level of physical discomfort, it's not really in the body, is it? Do you notice that? Since we've now concluded together that the body is nothing more than a sensation in the mind, when you feel pain, it's not really in the body, it's in the mind. Do you notice that? Pain is really only suffering when we think that we're the one in pain. 
You know, so we believe ourselves to be the body. That's why when the body is in pain, we suffer. Do you not see how you're buying into the illusion that you are the body is creating for you suffering? But if you now realize that it's just a dream, here's how you can practically use this. When there's pain in the body, do not say, I am in pain. Do not say, I hurt. Instead, just say, ah, there is arising now a feeling, a sensation. You know, why even label that sensation as pain? Is it not just a sensation? If you were to smell lavender, you don't suddenly think you're a good person. If you were to smell garbage, you don't suddenly think you're a bad person. You know that you're different from the lavender. You know that you're different from the garbage. Similarly, if you know that you're different from the body, nothing that occurs in the body should say anything about you. So when pleasure comes, ah, lavender. When pain comes, ah, garbage. It's just a sensation. And if you're able to change your vocabulary, if you're able to change the way you speak about pain, um, you will notice that a lot of things become uh, easeful. Here's something really funny. A lot of you might be suffering, feeling pain. Once you kind of step back a little bit, once you're able to say, ah, it's just pain, the body heals itself. You know how dogs just know when to eat and when not to eat when they're sick? There's a kind of natural intelligence the dog has, unless we've domesticated it to the point in which it's disconnected from its instincts. But most of the time, animals really know how to take care of themselves. They don't do it through thinking. They don't consult with like doctors. Um, they just know. They know what to eat, what not to eat. They know what water to avoid and what water to drink. This kind of natural well-being will spontaneously emerge in the mind of one who is no longer attached to the suffering of the body. That is to say, if you are able to appreciate every occurrence in the body as merely a sensation in the mind, the body will see to itself. You know, you are not new to this idea that most of what we suffer in the body has roots in the mind. You know, uh, nowadays we call this uh, holistic medicine, where we realize, okay, stress is responsible for our irritable bowel syndrome or whatever. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Atma Namaste. Yes. Um, so there you go. We're coming to this idea now, and uh, we've got a little more to cover. So here's our idea. The body is nothing but a mass of sensation. Our concepts of pain, of pleasure, of suffering, of joy are just concepts. And if you look into the root of concepts, you find sensation. If you are able to appreciate sensations coming and going without assigning a label to them, immediately you will find some relief in your suffering. Don't take my word for it. Try it. Now, actually, don't go out and look for suffering. Don't worry. It will find you soon enough. Uh, <laughs> it's very easy to suffer in this world. Just go drive to Starbucks. In the course of your trip, someone will trigger you. Now, the next time an emotion arises, remember this Vedanta is not for happy times. It's really most useful when there is suffering, when times are hard. People say, oh, I can't meditate because my mind is not peaceful. I think the cart is being put behind the horse here. You meditate so your mind can be peaceful. Oh, I can't be spiritual because my life is hard. No, no, no. You have to be spiritual because your life will always be hard until you figure out why it is that you're so afraid of death. Mm. So try it. The next time suffering arises, meaning the next time you feel something 
tantra for good times. <laughs> no, for bad times. The next time you feel something in you that you mark as unpleasant, instead of resisting it, instead of pushing it away, instead of protesting, how about you, you relax? You relax into this philosophy, which says it's got nothing to do with you, actually. It's, it's, it's no more you than the smell of lavender or the smell of garbage. It's just a feeling, you know, and it comes and it goes. So do you notice that a year ago, the things that you thought were so important are no longer that important to you now? The most horrific heartbreak you've experienced comes and goes, no? Think back to that breakup that you had, that during the time of that breakup seemed like it would end your life, seemed like you would be depressed forever. But then um, a new day rose, you know, and there were new things to be depressed about. <laughs> but essentially, notice that uh, emotions are like rainstorms, someone said. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like every sensation. When you sip the tea, there is a beginning to that tea sensation, there is a middle to the tea sensation, and there is an end to the tea sensation. It's all just a vibration in your awareness. So too, should you relate to every feeling in the mind slash body. We just conflate the mind and body. It's just a vibration in awareness. So in Tantra, uh, we use the image of Kali. So Kali is a good meditation image to feel into the philosophy that I just shared with you. So in Indian philosophy, we recognize that not everybody learns in the same way. Some people are more intellectually inclined. We learn through like auditory stimulation. So some of you might have really enjoyed the discussion we just had. You might've been like, yeah, philosophy, all right. Intellectual uh, rigor, I love to uh, do logic. And you might've enjoyed that. Some of you might've been like, what the fuck is this guy? You know, like, wow, this is, this is going over my head. I don't like the vibration of this. That's fine. We recognize that different people learn in different ways. So if the philosophy didn't make sense to you, deal with the symbols that encapsulate those philosophies. Here's another uh, Advaitic statement. Gods don't exist. They are merely symbols or representations for philosophies. When the philosophies are too subtle, when the philosophies aren't accessible, they become alive through the medium of a symbol. Kali is the symbol for what we just described. Notice that Kali's tongue is sticking out, you know. Um, she's kind of ecstatic, but in a very unhinged, uh, almost mad way. Westerfer is going to get very excited. Westerfer has actually had an experience of Kali on the operation table. I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Westerfer. Just a brief statement. On the operation table, when the pain is so intense, Westerfer went through the pain and realized, oh, actually, it's all just an ecstatic sensation, you know? So there's a story about Kali. Once Durga, one of the forms of Kali, was fighting a demon named Ratka Bija. The thing about Ratka Bija is that every time you slash this demon, a drop of its blood would fall on the floor and turn into a new demon. And so the more you fought the demon, the more of the demon there were. This sounds familiar, yes? This is your mind. The more you resist things, the more of it you get. What you resist persists. So this is the strategy that you've had for so long. You've resisted suffering. You've gone out to try to slay suffering, you know, with any kind of medication you could find, with any kind of philosophy. The orientation has always been to end suffering. But instead, um, there's another approach. So when Durga realized her predicament, when Durga realized no matter how much she slashed um, 
Ratkabija, she couldn't kill him. Durga realized she needed to summon Kali. So in some versions of the story, she projects Kali out of her third eye. The third eye in Indian uh, symbolism means wisdom. The third eye is really the philosophical uh, insight. It's the wisdom eye. So Durga tapped into her innate wisdom. In other words, she remembered this teaching. You know, so she brought to mind this teaching and this teaching radically altered her way of dealing with the situation. So in the story, Durga projected through her third eye, Kali. Kali appeared and when Kali slashed the demon, instead of allowing the demon's blood to fall on the floor, she licked it up. You see, Kali symbolizes radical acceptance in this sense. When an emotion arises in you, do not resist it, do not suppress it, do not meditate your way out of it. Instead, meditate to relax into it, eat it up, ah, just devour it whole, lick up the blood of that suffering as if it was the most delightful thing. Oh, there is pain in the hamstring. Oh, you lost a loved one. Feel that grief. Do not try to numb it with the Xanax. Do not run from it and hide in a spiritual philosophy. No, instead, let the spiritual philosophy be a way to become more intimate with that experience. Savor it. And then you know what will happen? So in the story, uh, no, you consume it, Alondra. You eat it. Don't let it consume you. It's in you. How can something in you consume you? No, awareness in awareness and sensation arises. Lick it up, devour it, savor it. Instead of saying, ow, say, ah. Just that one change is enough. It's very hard to practice, takes a lot of practice, and it can only be practiced when things are rough, which fortunately is all the time. <laughs> um, so when something happens, when the next thing that happens to you happens and you don't like it, remember this teaching. That's all you have to do. You just have to remember either the teaching or remember the image or the story of Kali and change your approach. Rather than run from that suffering, lick it up. Rather than say, ow, say, ah. Rather than say, I am sad, say, there is a sensation of sadness. Find out where it is in the body and go there. Be with it. Uh, and, and, and really what I'm saying is allow it. Uh, just give it permission to be there. And why not? It's only a dream, you know? Okay. So we're going to go a little further now. Kali, notice what happened after she licked the blood. She licked up the blood and it, it, it created a kind of ecstasy in her and she started to dance, you know, and she danced and danced and danced until the world was ripped asunder. What does this tell you? Earlier we said your world is nothing but concepts, right? If you are able to go beyond your concepts, if you are able to feel into each concept, into the heart of sensation, and then if you are able to feel into sensation, to the heart of awareness, then all your concepts will fade away and your life will be swept up into this ecstatic, orgiastic experience of bliss and delight. So that's another thing about awareness. For some reason, it's infinitely blissful. Please do not confuse bliss with a flavor of happiness. It's not that because it can be experienced just as readily in the most dramatic of sorrows, in the most heartbreaking instances of grief. Bliss is there, you know? And someone says, uh, Grace, she says, 
the image is part of, yes, exactly. Thank you, Grace. That's exactly it. If you look at the Vajra Yogini behind me, I, I don't think you can really see her, but uh, Vajra Yogini is a tantric form of Kali that was preserved in Tibetan tantric Buddhism. And uh, in the Vajra Yogini symbol, you see her drinking the, the cup of blood, you know, so this is a little bit of Tantra thrown in here for you. Uh, and this is your first practice. You know, so when there is something in you that you don't like, change your strategy. The first thing is remember when you were the dream, when you were in the dream, you really bought into it. You know, so, so too are you really buying into this, this dream. Remember that. Remember that when you go to sleep tonight, all of this will disappear and it will be replaced by a new dream. And when you encounter deep sleep, all of that will disappear too. Why continue to cling on to things that come and go? Just relax and watch them come and go. You know, uh, this changes your orientation. Uh, if you know that you're not the body, let the body and mind see to itself. When it's hungry, let it eat. When it's sleepy, let it sleep. When it feels energetic, let it lecture all night. Let the body do what it wants. Let the mind do what it wants. And the secret is, since you know it has nothing to do with you, you don't feel tired. You don't feel sick. You don't feel fear. Maybe the body does, you know? Maybe the body tightens up in fear. Maybe the mind contracts because of grief. But for some reason, you remain untouched by it. And when you can feel that, when you can stay somewhere behind the body and the mind, knowing that the body and mind are in you, something occurs that allows the body to relax, that allows the mind to in, 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 exist in its natural freshness and creativity. And suddenly from that, effortless action arises and all your problems solve themselves. Exactly, Beth. Some of you are interested in lucid dreaming but I'd be far more interested in lucid waking, you know? Mm. Now, this relaxation is the promise of Sankhya. So that's the first practical advice for you today. Really marinate your mind in this philosophy. If the philosophical language doesn't work for you, marinate your mind in the symbolical and artistic representations of this philosophy. That is the image of Kali or the Kali Yantra or something. Just let your mind uh, take in the mystery of that symbol, meditate on it, feel into the allegory, if you will. Okay, so that's one thing. You do that. And now notice what you have achieved is Sankhya. This is the philosophy of Sankhya. And Sankhya is awesome because if you truly believe you are not the mind and you are not the body, you will be forever free from the fear of death, forever safe from all grief and tragedy in the mind. Um, and you will encounter something in you that is so pure and beautiful. And you extrapolate from that, that what you found in you, that awareness is also there in others. So you know what will happen? If you follow this philosophy, to its consummation, meaning if you can feel into the conclusions that we've merely hinted at, you will fall in love with everybody. And I don't mean poetically, I mean like actually. You know, at first this will be very confusing for you because your mind will co-opt it as romantic love. So you'll go to the grocery store um, to buy some bread and you will fall in love with your cashier, you know. Uh, and then you'll be walking home from the grocery store, you'll meet someone on your way and you will fall in love with them. And you don't know what to do about this at first. You ask for their number. <laughs> you, uh, I don't know, write them poems. You just, you feel like you have to do something because when, you, when you're in love, what does love demand? It demands action, demands you sing, write, 
uh, you'll feel this great love and that will um, keep you in a state of perpetual bliss. Uh, and, and in a while you will start to realize, start to relax into this love and you realize you don't have to do anything about it. It's enough to look into someone's eyes and recognize in them the same awareness that you encountered in you. So in Sankhya philosophy, there are many purushas, meaning there are many awarenesses. This is not Advaita Vedanta. This is very pluralistic. The idea is each of you have a divine spark. Each of you are an awareness unto yourself. Because I have encountered my own awareness, I have dwelled in the sanctity and beauty of my own awareness, I am now finally able to see it in you. Because I realize I am not the mind, nor am I the body, I realize that you aren't your mind, nor are you your body either. That allows me to finally love you as you are. So I don't care what your body looks like, I realize you know, because I know it's not you. I have gone beyond the illusion of conflating a person with your body you know, because I know that I am not the body. So I extrapolate from that, that you aren't your body either. So I don't care what your body is. Uh, I don't even care whether or not you have one. You will meet disembodied beings and you will love them because you're no longer obs uh, obsessed with bodies. Next, I know that you are not your mind. How do I know that? Because I know that I am not my mind. I know that I am not the conglomerate thing that I call a personality, no more than you are. So whatever your personality is, doesn't mean anything to me because it doesn't say anything about you. You are the awareness in which your body and your mind are dancing. I can appreciate your body and mind as a kind of expression or emanation or vibration of you in the same way I can tell you that your perfume is nice. But I know that your perfume really doesn't say that much about you. And only then can I truly love you. Only then can I say I love you unconditionally, you know. And this is a wonderful state to be in. And this might be enough for you. Sankhya. Sankhya is enough for a lot of people. Uh, but we can go further. Okay. So now, if you're able to remember this philosophy, if you're able to internalize it, um, you will fall in love with other people and you will live a life of unconditional radical love and also a kind of natural spontaneous ease. But let's take it one step further. What if we said awareness is an individual? I mean, look at this. How can you say everyone else has one awareness that's different from your awareness? How do you cut up awareness? You can cut up bodies. Bodies are different. Minds are different because personalities, you see such distinction. But how do you distinguish awareness from awareness? Do you see the predicament here? Uh, bodies are different. It shows variation. Uh, minds are different. They show a great deal of variation. But show me now, what's the difference between your awareness and my awareness? What distinguishes your awareness from mine? Here we can use an Aristotelian maxim. If two things are exactly the same in every which way, it's the same thing. You know, how can you say awareness is there and not here? Awareness seems to be without space. Why? Because you cannot show awareness apart from space. Space is within awareness. You cannot show awareness apart from time since you know time is in awareness. So dig this. This is perhaps the final bit of subtle philosophy I will say today. <laughs> if a thing is to be different from another thing, it must differ in kind. It must differ spatially or at least temporally. Only then can you say there was a difference. Do you see? Our bodies are different. Why? Because they differ spatially. Our minds are different like our bodies, because they differ in kind. There are obvious differences in that body and this one. 
But what about awareness? You know, how can you say awareness is different spatially when it seems to, uh, uh, space requires awareness, but awareness doesn't require space. How can you say awareness is temporally different since time is in awareness, awareness is not in time. And how can you say it's different in kind without showing me right now that distinction? Now we've come into a very interesting philosophical conclusion. Awareness is one and the same. So now I don't have to love you as me to you. I can love you as me. Not in this egotistical way of jhana must be like nish, but in the way that says the jhana body and the nish body, the jhana personality and the nish personality have nothing to do with how in love we are. Do you see? We love each other because we realize only awareness exists. It is everywhere the same awareness. There is not your awareness versus my awareness. There is just awareness. And no one can show me that awareness is different in kind, space, or time. And therefore, it must always, at all times, be in all places, one thing. You know what this will allow you to do? This will allow you to fall in love, not just with people, but with everything. A leaf is as worship-worthy to you as a beautiful soul. This vacuum cleaner will be an encounter with God. Do you realize? You will look at a pile of shit and be like, oh, it's so beautiful. How ridiculous. And that's why they call us crazy people. Because honestly, everything you look at to you, you will see into it. You will see past it. You will see through the very atoms that make it up. You will see into its spaciousness and realize the same spaciousness that is everywhere. Um, and it's a spaciousness resounding with the songs of delight, you know? And your only work is to relax into this spaciousness um, resounding with the songs of delight. And all of Rumi's poetry is an exercise in being in that spaciousness. So you have four methods. The first is the way of the philosopher. We hinted at it last week. And that is this. Listen to these ideas over and over and over again. You don't yet believe them. You sense, you intuit their truth. I might have convinced some of your minds through these philosophical arguments, but you haven't yet internalized them. In order to internalize them, you should listen to them as often as possible. Why? You need to counter the decades worth of programming that up until now you have subjected yourself to. Reconditioning, exactly. Everything in your world has conditioned you to believe that consciousness emerges from the brain. You have been indoctrinated into the axioms of your logic, math, and science. And for some of you, into the axioms of your religion. You have been indoctrinated into the illusion that your way is the only way. That your truths are the only truths. That your body and your mind are you. Not only have you been indoctrinated into this, you have been indoctrinated into it and you are being indoctrinated into it every moment of the day, every ad you encounter, every time you open Instagram, every conversation you have in a friend, the very way we use our language confines you into a linguistically determined prison in which you will forever think that you are this body, this mind, uh, living in a world in which everything is separate from you. Ooh, quite the predicament. And get this, how is one lecture, one book, 
one asana class going to undo decades worth of indoctrination? I'm sorry, but it's going to take a little more than me tapping on your forehead and giving you a little bit of samadhi in order for you to actually meaningfully be in this realization. So how do you uh, deal with um, indoctrination? Reverse it by indoctrinating yourself into something else or have Red hypnotize you. Yes, Red is here. She's uh, studying to be a hypnotherapist and is now licensed, I believe. She will do it. Yeah. So um, what do you do? You've been hypnotized. The work is now dehypnotization. So starting now, immerse yourself only in philosophies that empower you. Reject as uh, reject everything that disempowers you. Reject every narrative that makes you feel like you are a victim, that you are somehow in the world, that the world is not in you. Reject everything that reifies in you the idea that you are this body and this mind. Just don't listen to it. And when you listen to it, counter it. You know, say no. When someone says to you, ah, Ryan, I'm so happy uh, you're finally in New York. I'm happy you came to visit me now that you're here in New York. Laugh and say, I'm not in New York. New York is in me. (laughs) They'll think you're crazy. Sure. Um, Because uh, sane people always seem crazy to a a rabble of crazies. (laughs) So, Here's your your first work is to avoid any kind of disempowering philosophy. Anything that says you are a sinner, anything that says you are the body, anything that says you are a mind. Uh, Avoid using language that reifies this idea. Avoid and then immerse yourself in this philosophy. Read the books, listen to the podcast, uh, come to the lectures. Do it as often as possible. Sit in the company of people who are holding this vibration and just marinate. Just marinate your mind in this new way of seeing the world. It's going to take a while. You will find that the old programming reasserts itself over and over and over again. As many times as you slip back into the ideas that no longer serve you, that many times you must find a way to extricate yourself out of it. Do not fear failure. You know, uh, you will fail and fall and forget a thousand times over, uh, but a thousand and one times you will remember. After all, there's no rush, you know, Um, You're not the body. So what's the time limit? What's the deadline? (laughs) You can relax. There's no work that you need to accomplish by any deadline. You know, Uh, just marinate. That's the first thing. That's step one. Four things. Yes. Step one, marinate yourself in this philosophy. Step two, uh, make sure your mind and body can catch up. So uh, after the Buddha achieved enlightenment, he went to the deer park and taught his five disciples. Like we learned last week, this might be a metaphor for the Buddha integrating his insight into the five skandhas, the five aggregates of the body. So once you achieve realization, that is actually not the end. It's the beginning of your spiritual life. Once you realize what it is we're pointing to, start to integrate it into the body. You do this through asana, pranayama, and philosophy. So in a moment, uh, precisely in about 13 minutes, we will end our lecture and we'll open open questions and answers. I invite you to ask the hardest questions you can possibly ask, and this philosophy will be able to meet you in debate. That's how you work with the mind. You assuage the mind. You debate. You argue. You reason it out. Oh, if I'm not the body, how come I felt that and not you, huh? 
If awareness is all one, why is it that when I fall asleep, you're awake, huh? You know, ask all of this. Uh, and this is a way for your mind to catch up with the realization that you already have, okay? But now the body must catch up too. It's no use thinking to yourself, I am unlimited awareness if your body still believes in its own limits. Yes or no? If you still think you can't do a headstand, you truly don't yet believe that you're capable of doing anything. So work with asana. You know, slowly, surely find a way to dehypnotize yourself into the illusion that you are limited in this body. No, the body is in your mind. What is the body but sensation? And what is the sensation but awareness? And ultimately, if you ask Abhinava Gupta, he would say, if you ask him, what is this world made of? He would smile and say, it is merely light shining. And if you were able to look at a body in this state, you would see uh, light shining, a kind of scintillating light. Why, can, why is that light being limited? Except by a superimposition of the mind, you know? So one way to work with the body is with pranayama, with, with, with asana. Get the body and mind to catch up to your realization that you truly are boundless. You know, but okay, the body will have its limits. That's part of being a body. Like the body will die. It will be sick. In those moments, you remember that you are not the body. You are not the mind. You know? uh, and then the body will, for some reason, tend to adopt some level of health. I, I'm not really sure why, uh, but you'll find some level of health. Okay, so first step, marinate your mind in this philosophy. Second step, integrate it in the body and the mind. So practice diligently um, with this understanding. So anywhere that you encounter resistance, whether it's in the body or the mind, do some practices to root that limitation out and snuff it out once and for all. Burn it up in your new realization. Okay, the third thing you can do, yes, don't take it on faith. Work into the truth for yourself. The third thing you must do is cultivate selflessness. So I'm just going to say, and, and this is very brief, uh, and I'm being very glib here, but the one root, the, or I say the one obstacle really preventing you from understanding this philosophy or preventing you from internalizing this philosophy is your attachment to a sense of self, to this preciousness that we all feel. So the third thing you should do is engage in practices that deprioritize the self. And there are two practices par excellence for this. The first is bhakti devotion. Uh, you don't have to believe in these gods. You just put up an altar to anything. It could be an acorn from your favorite forest for all we care about. You know, it could be a shoe, a shoe that got you up the Himalayas that one time you visited. Or it could be a beautiful image of Lakshmi. Grace and I went to a beautiful store today in Santa Monica, uh, my friend's store, Kathmandu Boutique. Who I, I love that store. It's a, it's a small business I've been supporting forever. And Grace got this beautiful image of Lakshmi and she set it up on her altar. You know, so whatever, it, if, it's, if it's Yahweh or the Islamic mystics use calligraphy and will put up a Quran verse on their altar, um, whatever inspires you, put it up on an altar and every day drop to your face before it, you know, uh, just allow yourself to surrender to it. The very word Islam, Islam means surrender, submission. And that's one of the most powerful practices to encountering your innate spirituality. As Rumi says, I became empty. 
I'm disappearing. I'm dying. Coleman Box translates it. I'm dying into this emptiness and emptiness echoing with praise. You know? So uh, in a way, you need to do practices that help you die. And one of those best ways is to fall to your face before your uh, Ishta Devata or your chosen spiritual ideal. You know? Um, so it, it's, it's helpful. And, and w- next week, we'll do karma yoga. The week after that, we're doing bhakti yoga. We'll talk a little bit about how to choose an Ishta Devata, you know, how to choose an inspiring image and how to actually go about practicing that. Now, if you don't like the bhakti stuff, if you don't like devotion, uh, perhaps because you grew up in a household that practiced the wrong kind of devotion with too much dogma, and you're a little bit, uh, you know, afraid of that, uh, first of all, question those assumptions. But secondly, you might do karma yoga. Uh, the only God you should be worshiping really is the God that you see in your fellow man, woman, person. You know, That's the only God that really exists. So go out into the world and just do some work. There's always something. There's always some curly dog's tail to straighten out. And don't worry, the work will never end. <laughs> the, the suffering in the world will never go away. Um, so you have infinite tasks to do. Just pick one. If you like the soup kitchen stuff, do that. Uh, if you want to teach kids in inner cities music, do that. Uh, just do it a lot, you know, and especially do it when you don't want to do it. Devote yourself to some cause like the environment, you know. Um, devote yourself to something and then just go out and do it, do it, do it, do it. And eventually uh, it seems like you shrink. Yeah, work with the animals, you know, and give them everything. And most importantly, the thing about volunteer work is you don't get anything back. Now, if you turn something into a business, it stops being karma yoga. Even though you're accepting money from it, you know, um, don't turn it into a business. Just go and do it uh, and do it for the others. You know, do it, do it to make people happy. Be obsessed with making people happy. Uh, especially when it comes at a cost to you. As Kant would say, right, categorical imperative, uh, act on duty, not according to duty. It's only really a good act if you really don't want to do it. <laughs> so bhakti, um, karma, uh, you know, working with the body and the mind, which we call kriya or asana, meditation, working with jnana, these are all ways to practice. But before I uh, end our lecture, I want to give you the three pillars of practice that I hinted at at the very beginning of our lecture. So the three pillars of practice are this. You might recognize that you have some, but not the others. The three pillars of practice uh, with a bonus fourth are this. The first one, this is the most important. No one could stress this more for you. Consistency. You got to do it every single day, if not every single moment. Like we said, you are being hypnotized every single moment. It's going to take a little more than one hour each day to de-hypnotize yourself, but at least do that. Do you realize that many of us have big gaps in our practice? We have some seasons where we're intense about our practice, and then we forget all about it for like two or three weeks, and then we pick up where we left off. That's okay. But vow now, in this very moment, to start small, but at least do it every day. Be consistent. Don't let a day pass in which you didn't do your practice, whatever that practice is for you. If it's sitting in front of your altar singing kirtan with a harmonium with Krishna Das, if it's reading these books and working through philosophy, uh, whatever your practice is, do it at least once every single day. Consistency. The first pillar is consistency. The second pillar is um, as important as the first. 
but without the first, actually they're all, they're pillars, right? Without any of the pillars, the whole building will collapse. But consistency is the first thing to say. The second is mindfulness. That is, no matter how consistently you practice, if you are not actually there, if you're not actually paying attention to the practice, you will miss the insights that the practice offers you. So in Buddhism, they call this samyak smriti, which means right uh, mindfulness. In Islam, they call it zikr. And in Sufism, I actually want to draw from Sufism a bit. Zikr, which means remembering God, um, has three properties. One is uh, nafya, nasya, nasya, taqwa, isan. Yes, nasya, I believe. I might be saying that wrong. I'm not a Sufi. Uh, but nasya, and in a sense I am, but nasya means, um, uh, how to translate? Okay, taqwa means like remembrance, like being there, uh, being alert. Isan means lovingly, with the spirit of beneficence, you see? And uh, nafsa kind of means like attentiveness, you know? So ideally, attentively uh, be there lovingly. And Ram Das has a phrase, I am loving awareness. It's like that. You must be with something um, lovingly. Be happy when you practice. You know, don't like grit your teeth and be like, oh, I hate practicing. Choose a practice that actually resonates with you. You know, if you are not a jnani, if you're not intellectually persuaded uh, to study rigorous philosophy, don't read Shankaracharya's Atma Bodha and debate it with me all day. Uh, you might prefer to sing songs to Krishna and to Rama, do that. Um, but if devotion sickens you, if like singing songs is not your thing, come and meditate with Westerfer and Kaz, you know, sit with the Buddhist and practice Samyak Samadhi. Um, so one way to practice with presence and with lovingness is to choose a practice that you actually like, you know, and consistency is because when that practice starts to work, you'll stop liking it. <laughs> That's the irony, you know, your ego will start to resist its own corrosion. Uh, and, and it means well, by the way, it's just worried that without its help, you'll die. <laughs> it's worried that if you replace its self, uh, 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 what do you call it? Self-preservation program with another one, that one won't, won't work well and you'll die. You know, so um, uh, when your spiritual practice starts to work, that's when you'll least want to do it. And that's when your commitment to consistency will help you the most. Excuses will come. You'll say, oh, I, I know I should practice today, but it's really better if I got some rest instead. Maybe just a few more pages of this book. Um, maybe I'll stay in satsang for another, satsang's good, good vibrations. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll just, uh, I don't know, do this instead. But no, these excuses are the ego's resistance to its own destruction. As you should, Ryan, I'm happy. This honesty is so important. You know, this should be self-effacing because we are all victim to inconsistent practice and to absent-minded practice. So we must be consistent. We must practice every day, no matter what. And what else is there to do, really? I mean, this is the one practice that will sanctify every other moment of your life. It will free you from death. It will show you who you really are. It will connect you to more love than you ever dreamed possible. What could be a priority above this? And sometimes it's important to remind yourself that. Remind yourself why you're practicing. Go in and practice. Consistency, mindfulness. The third thing is, and this is very difficult, um, the third thing, once you have a consistent practice, once you have a mindful practice, the third thing is 
surrender your craving for the fruits of that practice. The surest way to block your success is by hankering after it. Because the surest way to not find is to be so busy seeking. There is a way in which you could be so busy seeking that you miss what's there right in front of you. Remember how we said last two lectures, uh, this is not the practice of getting something. You're not going out to acquire something you don't have. This is not the practice of ripping something away. There is nothing really in existence for you to rip away. This is just the practice of relaxing into the truth here and now that hopefully we showed you in the arguments we just did. Just a matter of relaxing into that. It's a fact. It's a fact. Your own enlightenment is a fact. It just takes a little bit of relaxing into it. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> it is what you actually are. So if you hanker after results, you are reifying the notion that it's something to get. This is why you shouldn't hanker and crave. Because the moment you believe your spiritual practice is going to get you something, you're already reifying the idea that you're incomplete, that there is something to get that will uh, complete you. Yes, it's like missing the love of your life while you are scrolling at Tinder. Ah, could not have said it better. Um, that's exactly right. It's, it's missing it because you're looking for it. That's the ultimate tragedy of spiritual life. So it's, it's a bit funny. Um, most artists know this very well. Just do a thing for its own sake. And before you know it, everything will sort itself out. You want some money? Don't worry. Just do what you love. People will throw money at you. Um, and that's why loving something is important, you know, loving it. You must really love the practice that you do. Um, you must be in love with spirit, so to speak. So allow yourself to fall in love with, with yourself, I suppose, a capital S, and then fall in love with everything that reminds you of that self. If there's a bookstore that reminds you of that, go there. If there's a book that reminds you of that, read it eight times. If there are people that remind you of that, hang out with them incessantly. You know. Now the fourth pillar, and this is, this is a bonus pillar, but it's really important. Um, you need to take a lot of time in solitude. You know, In order to really gestate, in order to really marinate in this stuff, you need to afford for yourself rest, repose, and solitude. You know, there needs to be some time to cook, some time to marinate. So once someone asked Ramakrishna, how do I end suffering? And he said, fix your mind on God. And, and by God, remember, Ramakrishna doesn't mean guy in the sky. He means a principle. He means a living principle of spirituality. Fix your mind on that. Now, M, who is the writer of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, and we'll close here, asked a really beautiful question. He asked, uh, how do I do that? How do I fix my mind on God? And Ramakrishna, in one sentence, encapsulated 9,000 years of South Asian philosophical practice. He said, um, sing her praises constantly, discern between the real unreal, and have a dispassion for the unreal. You see, uh, uh, sing her praises constantly. That's bhakti yoga. Sing, dance. Then discern between the real versus the unreal. That's jnana yoga. Have dispassion for the unreal. Karma yoga or raja yoga. You know, meditation, devotion, philosophy, all encapsulated in that one sentence. And in other places, he would often say, uh, spend time with holy people and be alone a lot. 
People would ask him, oh, but I got my wife and child or I've got my husband and children. How? And he's like, no, you can at least take maybe an afternoon or a day off, if not a week, go and spend some time by yourself. And if there are holy people around, go and sit with them because you will get from them a vibration. Uh, and, and that's really all there is to it. So the fourth pillar is be alone as much as you can. And when you're with others, be with holy people. That is to say, be with people who are actively pursuing their own spiritual emancipation. You really do become what you think about. That is to say, you think about what you surround yourself with. So right now, the only real practice you should do is to be a little more discerning with what you are marinating your mind in. Uh, Ramakrishna would also say, your mind is like a colorless cloth. Be careful which pot of dye you soak it in. You know, all we're doing is soaking. <laughs> that's funny because you know that's a practice the Jehovah's Witnesses do before marriage. So it's not really technically sex if you just put the penis in the vagina and you soak. So <laughs> I don't know if you heard of that, but it's like a little hack that some people do to avoid uh, incurring sin for uh, premarital sex is they just soak. I don't know why I said that, but the idea is all you're doing is soaking. You're soaking your mind in a particular dye. Just be very discerning which pot you're putting the mind in. And that means you should be discerning with the company that you keep. You should be discerning with the books that you read. You should be discerning with the thoughts that you think and be discerning with the things that you do. We'll close here. Do not spend time with the people. Do not do the things that, uh, do not do things, spend time with people or think thoughts that disempower you. Do not act, think, or occupy yourself in a way that reifies your separation, your feeling of body-mind. Um, reject all philosophies that disempower you and weaken you. Accept only the ones that strengthen you. Do not take things on faith. Instead, find out for yourself and really root it out. You know, like the hog looks for the um, truffle. Root it out. Root all the sticky places in your mind and in your body. And through asana, through pranayama, through close work with the teacher, through meditation, find those places and end them. Dissolve them, so to speak. See through them. So in conclusion, see the rope for what it is. Be gone, all these befuddled dreams of snakes. You know, there is nothing that can harm you. So here we'll, uh, we'll, we'll quote Ram Das to close. If you truly internalize his philosophy, you should be relaxed. That's how you know. You should relax. The body should be soft. There should be no more tension. Not only should you be relaxed, you should be energetic. Oh, because, you know, what you used to spend your energy on as Fabricio says, the high energy demand of pro projecting a conceptual reality, if you perhaps preserve some of that energy, um, you'll be able to do creative work and it will just flow out of you. And finally, you should feel loving, unconditionally loving. Someone could do something horrible, like rob you or lie to you. Um, and your mind might protest, but you might still be in love with them. You know, a mother knows this. A mother knows how to love unconditionally. So mothership, mothership, motherhood is the highest state that mammals understand that can be analogous to this. Uh, oh, <laughs> whoops. I got live access suspended for violating our community guidelines. <laughs> That's too bad. Oh, well. 
okay, bye-bye TikTok live. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, reject. <laughs> it, it, it was the soaking thing. It was the soaking. <laughs> yes. So reject any philosophy um, that does not uh, that, that uh, disempowers you. And think about mothers. Think about the way mothers mother. You know, so we'll close with this story. Once a prince fell in love with a beautiful princess. Uh, the problem was, is that TikTok is where I learned about soaking though. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. So the, yeah, we've totally derailed our conversation tonight with this whole soaking thing. <laughs> but yeah, so um, now the mother of this child, this child was in love with this princess and she was a very wicked, wicked lady. I mean, beautiful, but wicked. So she said to him, Prince, if you really love me, um, bring me your mother's head as a sign of your devotion to me. You know how in India, there's often a conflict between the stepmother and the, the wife. So she said, bring me your mother's head and then I will know you truly love me above all. And driven mad by love, this boy runs to the mother and chops her head off. And he's so desperate to show his new lover uh, that he did what he, she asked. So he's running, you know, he's running to the house of his lover, holding, <laughs> holding the mother's head. Yeah, and he's running and suddenly the, the, the severed head of the mother says, careful son, don't run so fast, you might trip and fall. How beautiful. The mother loves him even in that. So this is how you know you've internalized this philosophy. You should be relaxed, you should be creative, and you should be loving. And if nothing else, remember this. Ram Das once, he met a disembodied being and he said, oh, what should I teach people? And the being said to him, Ram Das, Teach everyone um, this. Death is perfectly safe. Yeah, Emmanuel, exactly. His friend, Emmanuel. Death is perfectly safe. How beautiful. How beautiful. You know. So whatever it is, obscurity, poverty, um, sickness, and actual physical death, remember that it's all perfectly safe. You know. It's perfectly safe. And if you can relax into that, it will take care of itself. You'll have enough to eat. You'll have a place to sleep. Uh, it's like taking off a tight shoe. Exactly, as Ram Dass said. So uh, with that, let us close out here. Um, and let us do a Gayatri Mantra, one of the oldest mantras from the South Asian spiritual tradition. And the mantra literally means, I invoke thee. Thou who art the highest manifestation of life, thou who art the source of life itself, I invoke thee that thou might illumine each and every one of my thoughts in the radiant light of wisdom. So let us kind of melt into the sound of this Gayatri Mantra. I will chant it thrice. You might join me. Um, and let's allow the mantra sonically to clean out our mind of any concept that no longer serves to empower us. So you might find some length in the spine. You might soften in the jaw. You might bow the head.
ಸ್ವಾಹಾತ್ಸಾವಿಮಿ ಪ್ರಚೋದಯತ್ ಓರ್ಭುವ ಸ್ವಹ ತತ್ಸವಿರ್ಗೋದೇವಸ್ಯಮಿ ದಿಯೋ ನಚೋದಯತ್ ಸ್ವಾಹಾತ್ಸವಿರ್ಗೋದೇವಸ್ಯಮಿ May all beings know love and peace. May all beings be free of suffering and from the causes of suffering and may all our actions contribute to this. Om peace peace peace. Thank you for being my teachers.